Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Ps in a Pod, the new podcast from the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Deputy Editor Jonathan Davis, and in today's episode, we're going to have a Scottish focus. Our editor, Paul Jarvis, is going to be interviewing Peter Rieke from the Scottish Futures Trust. And after that, Paul and I will delve into some of the main points raised on the discussion. Over to you, Paul. Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, as Jonathan said, we're interviewing Peter Rieke, the Chief Executive of the SFT, Scottish Futures Trust. He has a leadership role spanning economic and social infrastructure sectors, as well as early investment prioritisation through financing and delivery to contract and asset management. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I think a good place for us to start is around the question of net zero, something people all around the world are talking about, governments in particular. And I know the SFT has been busy on this topic and doing a lot of work around tackling carbon emissions. So if you could explain what you're doing around the net zero agenda, that would be great. As you say, we're no different from any infrastructure organisation, whether we be policymakers, owners, investors around the world. We're all thinking about net zero. And it's at the top of all of our agendas. But for me, increasingly, it's not enough. Excuse me. It's, it's, it's obviously critical to mitigation. And as many people know, Scotland has some of the world's most ambitious and legally binding targets to achieve net zero by 2045 with interim targets of 75% reduction by 2030 and 90% by 2040. But from the weather we're seeing around us, we, we all know that increasingly climate change elements are locked in and those same infrastructure policymakers, funders, owners, operators are thinking about resilience and adaptation as well as mitigation. And so the balance of investments between those two things, I think is increasingly going up the agenda. And in SFT as well, we have objectives more broadly to improve the outcomes from infrastructure for people and places across Scotland. So that of course means taking action on net zero, but also working with partners increasingly in a place-based way to create sustainable places and contribute to inclusive growth. So it's about people, places, planet and prosperity, those sort of new four pillars, if you like, of well-being in many ways, of, of which net zero is a massive part. It's, it's, it's a massive thing for us to do, but it's not everything. And on its own, it's not even enough. We have, we have to think about more than that. And we're engaged in all of that work. And existing PFI and PPP projects are something you've been doing a lot of work on. Very much so. And, and existing assets are a, a massive part of it, aren't they? So our work is focused on infrastructure and the built environment. So it's where one of the biggest decarbonisation challenges lie. So we're involved in decarbonisation of transport and EV charging and massively in heat and buildings. And I think that's particularly where the PFI assets come in. And I guess for a number of years now, we've been hearing people talking about putting LED lights in and patting themselves on the back and saying how, how great we've been on, on net zero. And that is simply not enough. It's nowhere near enough on these assets that will have long-term PPP contracts in place, still still contracted, when that building has to be a net zero building to meet the, the policy objectives that have been set in Scotland. So we need to find ways in these long-term contracts that many people see as inflexible of delivering the change that is required to get that building to to net zero. We've published some guidance on that and our contract management team is working with public bodies and their investor and FM contractor counterparts across Scotland on 
couple of pilot projects, one of which is in the hub program, and we have another pilot and a, a, a PFI school uh, contract to see what is the route map to taking that contract and the asset behind the contract and moving that to be fit for net zero. And what's the reaction been to that from the private sector? People are really positive about it because, as you said at the beginning of this, it's on everybody's agenda. You know, everyone that's an investor needs their money increasingly to be in ESG compliant investments. Everyone in our sector as an individual, I think, wants to play their part. Okay, that's obviously the existing stock. But if we look at new projects, where does the SFT come in? As I said, I think the big bits of the infrastructure world that are contributing emissions is uh, transport and heat and buildings. So our work is focused in in those two areas. So to, to sort of pick them off, if you like, in transport, we're working very much with Transport Scotland, Scotland's National Transport Agency, on EV charging low carbon buses and the public sector fleet. We see it as really important that the public sector shows leadership with its own assets, both in buildings and in in transport, because if we decarbonize ourselves, that not only contributes to the country's decarbonization, but it gets supply chains ready for the work that they have to do with the rest of society as well, if you like. But with, with Transport Scotland, we see new forms of public-private partnership and investment opportunities across these sectors. Um, And we're really keen to learn from other jurisdictions. So if anyone out there has seen routes that work to get um, private investment into the charging and broader infrastructure, we want to hear about that. We don't have a monopoly on on the best ways to do it, far from it. In fact, I think that we've got work to do to show that Scotland is a great jurisdiction to invest in in those sort of assets and in January, we published with Transport Scotland a new vision for the public charging network in Scotland. And it is sort of forward to that. The Cabinet Secretary for Net Zero Energy and Transport was clear that public and private sector partnerships will be key in attracting the investment needed to scale that provision at pace. So we're really trying to change the model and make this an investable proposition. And that's our role working alongside Transport Scotland. So there's an opportunity for that. There's also opportunities, I think, in more joining up across the public sector for at least the infrastructure aspects of public sector fleet decarbonisation and to do more for the larger vehicles where hydrogen may have a role to play and, and sort of integrated vehicle and energy systems deals might be a way to go and could bring real life cycle value. So all of these things are things we're exploring with Transport Scotland on that public sector fleet side. There's a lot to be done, again, leading in the rest of society where we see investment opportunities as well. So that's vehicles in heat and buildings. There's a lot going on in policy development, in the regulation that's going to be needed and incentivization and and on delivery. In in Scotland, we have a heat in buildings strategy, so a slightly different name from the the UK strategy, which is heat and buildings. Um, That was published in October last year. Sets out the need to improve both energy efficiency in existing buildings, get a million homes onto zero emissions heating by 2030, and to decarbonise new builds. So we're working on all of those areas with Scottish government policymakers. The estimated cost of that across all of Scotland's building stock, around £33 billion. So... Again, that presents investment opportunities 
and the need for new styles of partnership between the public and private sectors. The minister said in that strategy, there's no silver bullets or easy solutions to heat and buildings. I know it's an area where many that are involved in it are frustrated about the pace of progress. I've not come across anyone that's involved in that sector that's not frustrated with the pace of progress. But the fact is, it's really, really difficult from the choices of for individual assets and at scale between investment in energy efficiency and in decarbonized heat, the differences in technology for generating that heat and delivering decarbonized heat, who's paying the funding and financing discussion that we like to have, including for sort of heat pumps and hydrogen and heat networks where there's still some technology choices there. Yes. And as you say, it's big numbers and big ambitions and big things like hydrogen delivery which is not a small investable proposition, is it? It trips off the tongue, doesn't it? But <laughs> Indeed, it's easy to say, but much harder to do. So how do you, as the SFT, being a relatively small unit within a relatively small government, realistically, go about enabling that? So we see the need for people who understand the technical, financial and commercial structuring of deals at the public-private interface and regulatory mechanisms, incentivization mechanisms, all of which are going to be required. These problems cannot be solved by the spending of public budgets. We need to find a way of creating investable propositions in so many areas of decarbonization. And all of us that work in that landscape therefore have a part to play. I think we're all exactly working out what what our part is and how it fits in, how similar it is to what we've done before, how different it is to what we've done before. But there's at least a niche for everyone in there. For us, it's bringing those financing and commercial skills to turn aspirations and policy targets into investable propositions. So creating that full chain from a target of wanting to decarbonize through a particular technology route into an investable proposition is where our skills play into that along with the policymakers. And then I guess broadening out from the net zero agenda, how do you see the current landscape for infrastructure in Scotland? The current landscape, I suppose, in many ways, similar but different to how it's always been. It's challenging, exciting in equal measures, just for different reasons at any particular point in time. So I would say at the minute, there's a lot going on and probably more of it is different from the things that have gone on before than has been the case for a long time. We're doing less of building more of the same sorts of things and more of trying to make different things investable. So you know, we have a new investment hierarchy in Scotland that was agreed a couple of years ago now in our infrastructure investment plan. So at the top of that is determining future need, what we need for the future, not just what we need to replace what we've got just now, thinking really far out about what the country needs, and then maximizing the use of existing assets, because we, I think we have an emerging knowledge of how much of the carbon in infrastructure in the built environment is embodied. And, and we need to make the best use of what we've got, not only for economic reasons, but for carbon and environmental reasons. So we then, after we've thought about what we've got, we need to think about repurposing and co-locating. We increasingly think that if people are building a new asset for their own organization or their own service, just that, that's probably not enough. It probably needs to be different for a different service than it was before. And it probably needs to be with other people, not just for you. It needs to work well in its place. So and only after we've done all of that thinking should we be thinking about replacing a new building. So we have a different way of looking at infrastructure, if you like, and that applies to social and economic. And we, we know 
that we've got less money. So challenging um, capital spending review. There was a, a, a cash reduction of around about 5% in Scotland's capital budgets from UK government in the, in the latest spending review. We know that construction prices are going up. And I'm, everyone, the other thing that everyone's talking about, if they're thinking more short term, I suppose, is inflation. Um, the, the Bayes Materials Index is running over 20% at the minute. So if we're thinking about inflation running nine and, and, and odds, construction materials overall are running double that. So it's a big point at the minute, along with cash budgets. So we've got ambitions to do things differently. We've got cash constraints. All of that says to me that, that new and different forms of partnerships are in the mix. We need to do this, turning things into investable propositions. So I see that clearly decarbonisation will remain a priority. I think that adaptation is, is sort of coming up there as, as equally important in our infrastructure, competing for investment, if you like. We know that demographics are changing. So the services we need to deliver and the social infrastructure we need to, to deliver it is, is changing. The skills base of the industry, the way we build things is changing more quickly than that ever has been before. We're very great challenge on the amount of money we've got is leading us to want to and to have to do things a very different way, all of which strikes me as an opportunity for new forms of partnerships and new ways of working between the public and the private sectors. Mm, absolutely. And picking up on one of the things you mentioned there, inflation, I think at the start of 2022, people thought it would sort of come and go, whereas I think there's more of a feeling now that it's something we're going to have to live with. What is the SFT doing to work with projects and those that are on live procurements in particular to help them at this point? I don't think inflation at 9-10% is here to stay. But I do think that the inflation that we've had and a bit more to come is locked in. So it, it will reduce, but it won't go back to where it was before. So we have a period at the minute of, of particular uncertainty. I think there's a number of things that we're working with procuring bodies and with industry on. Starting at the beginning, I suppose, is, is prioritisation in that if you're a procuring organisation that has a portfolio of projects or even a portfolio of programmes, to me, it's it's unlikely to be the right thing to do to try and, if you like, beat all of those up and take that 10% out of the scope of all of those individual things. It's much more likely to be the right thing to do, at least in the short term, to think which are the nine of those 10 things that you really want and carry on with those and put the 10th one on pause and reallocate your budgets accordingly. Because we need to keep going. There are things that we need to do. We can't sit here and wait for this inflation to wash through. I think our relationship with the private sector is important and the private sector's relationship with its supply chain is really important. And that has to be a continuum that goes all the way through. We can't have a situation where main contractors and even funders, financiers are saying, you know, we need some relief from all of this and then not passing that relief all the way down to the SMEs at the bottom of the pile. So I think it's quite a big test for how supply chains are integrated and how they work together. Sadly, there are likely to be some, some corporate failures and how we deal with that together will be a, a big test of those, those relationships. That's what we're working with the procuring bodies and the industry on all the way through from procurement, from prioritization through procurement, how you go about that in these times into managing the contracts that will be difficult. And we'll see that come through the PPP contracts as well, as and when you, you have PPP contracts that are, for example, fully indexing, as they have been historically in some sectors. And that huge slug of inflation comes through those very big contracts in for 
procuring bodies that have fixed budgets, I think we'll start to see some tensions rise around those contracts again um, that between us all we, we will need to manage. Yeah, absolutely. And on live procurements, I know some countries have spoken about looking to support bid costs. Is that something you would consider looking at? For me, those things are all very much case by case. So I, I wouldn't want to make any sort of blanket statement about them. I, I do understand and we've, we've always sought to try to minimise the bid costs in any in any situation. I think that there are definitely ways of doing that. We work, as you know, in our hub programme with, with partners that have been selected for a long time, and then we develop the detail of individual contract packages with those partners. So a lot of that detail costing work goes on with, with procured partners. So how we manage the, the interaction of design development leading into costing, leading into subcontracting, how we manage that sort of technical process, if you like, along with the formality of, of procurement. There is more that we can do, again, working with industry in different ways to manage that cost base. But then I agree with you, there are some cases where how that shared needs to be looked at. Competition is, in, in some cases, in some areas, really important. So I'm not going to sit here and give an answer that says we'll do it like this or we'll do it like that. It's definitely something that's horses for courses, but I'm fully alive to it as, as an issue. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon some time ago tasked the SFT with looking into the mutual investment model, the kind of Welsh PPP approach, to consider whether that would be an appropriate route for Scottish projects to follow. Can you give any update on how that work is going? The work you refer to is in May 2019, we published an options appraisal into privately financed profit sharing schemes to deliver that additionality of investment, which is what we were looking for as part of our national infrastructure mission. So, so we did recommend at that stage that the right tool for that privately financed investment in all of the current context would be the mutual investment model. We're still discussing that and the potential for it to be used on individual projects and programs in Scotland and no firm decisions have been taken in that. You and people listening in will know that it has been in discussion for use for the A9 road and that, that remains the case that we're looking at that as one of the options to, to deliver additionality of investment. Uh, so again, I can't give you any further updates on that. Okay. The one other big topic, I suppose, is the expiry and handback of PFI contracts. Could you tell us what the SFT is doing on this? I know that we have some early projects handing back. We've got schools and hospitals, in particular, we've got prisons, as well as some of the water deals and, and roads. So that's a very live mix. We publish guidance, and as many people will, will know, and we, we were keen right from the outset to take a program approach to, to hand back. So we've created communities of interest amongst the public sector because there is going to be a capacity and capability squeeze, that's for sure, in doing the work um, for handback on either side, if you like, any of the any of the stakeholders. I, I don't think we'll be able to manage handback with the teams that they have had in place on steady state. It will require resources from SPVs, it will require resources from FM contractors, it will require resources from public authorities. So getting those in place early enough and getting them working together well having common understandings of the problems I think is, is really important. The approaches to surveys which in most cases um, can and should be done 
earlier than the dates that the early contracts will have said that they should be done. Everyone has said the relationship is critical and everyone is right to say that the relationship is critical. But I think we need to scratch underneath that a little bit and understand the drivers for all of the different parties in the different contracts out there. So the drivers for the parties will be different if you're a one-off investor that only has one PFI contract out there versus if you've got a long portfolio of them that's still in the market for a long time. It will be different on an individual contract if you're an FM provider that thinks there might be follow-on work to take over that, looking after that asset versus one where there's likely to be a cheapy transfer of staff back to the um, the public authority and, and no more work for you on that individual contract, but you're probably still in the market. So we collectively, I think, need to think about what's the future for the individuals that we're going to charge with bringing to these contracts to an end. Um, because we want the outcomes to be good for those people as well as good for the assets and for the organizations. So I think we, we need to do more than sit in the middle and say it's all about relationships. We need to get underneath that and think about what are the component parts of those relationships. And that's what our team is is doing with the thinking about the, the physical assets, thinking about the data assets, thinking about the future service provision, what we want that asset to be and do in the future. Because handing an asset back or bringing a contract to an end is going to be hard enough. But doing that in an environment where, to rewind to the top of the conversation, we also want it to come out as a net zero ready asset that is fit for delivering a service in the future rather than the service it was set up to deliver 25 years ago superimposes another layer of difficulty on top of that. And I think we all across the industry will be doing ourselves a disservice if these contracts come to an end with a lot of lovely shiny white elephants being handed back to the public sector. We need to be thinking about more than that and the future of these assets at the same time. And I'm sorry to superimpose a level of difficulty on something which is already very difficult, but the reality is that's where we are and that's what we have to try and deal with. Well, yes, you talk about the difficulty of it. I suppose that raises the question as far as you're concerned with the SFT. Does the SFT have the capacity or does it need to increase its capacity to deal with that and everything else we've spoken about today? Yeah, we, we, we don't and we never will have the capacity to deal with all of the handbacks. That shouldn't be our role. We have a model of, of creating a pyramid, if you like, where our small team is addressing the nationally significant issues and we're producing guidance both on bringing contracts to an end, handback and on net zero in PPP contracts. And then we work on some of the really complex difficult things that come across nationally, like we had a role on, on, on LIBOR Sonia along with IPA for the, the, the contracts in, in Scotland. So there are some things that we can deal with at that sort of national peak, if you like, where we like to collaborate very much with what's happening across the rest of the UK and with IPA in, in particular. But beneath that, we've created these communities of interest that I talked about where across different sectors or geographies, the individual and contract managers and procuring authorities will collaborate together to bring capacity and capability. And again, I'm not saying that's going to be enough. They will need to bring in resources. There will be requirements for consultants in these areas. And, and again, underneath that layer, we have the individual contract managers that are looking after um, tactically those individual assets. So I think it will always be a layered approach we could use as much resource. Everyone would ask us for more resource. You know, we, we could put someone on each of these contracts. That's not going to happen. It has to remain a, a sort of 
pyramid arrangement where we do what we can to support the tricky things, the things that will make a difference, create precedent at a national level, and then um, we cascade that that down. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Peter. It's been really interesting. Thank you again. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. It's a pretty wide-ranging interview. It's really interesting. So just to start off, net zero, I mean, what a topic. Where do you begin to start on that? I think we've seen that there's some low-hanging fruits with LEDs, but like I said, that's just not enough. And what I like to see is, is Peter's really conscious of how, yes, net zero is embedded into these targets, these legislative decades-away targets, but there's also a target that's on shifting sands and we need to respond to the way the portfolio needs to respond to the challenges. This is new need for mitigation projects and, and climate resiliency. Seeing how net zero unfolds is not a straightforward path. It's going to change over and over. And it was really insightful to see how the leadership is thinking on that and how projects are going to respond. And at the same time, you've got this large target and underneath that, the fiscal landscape is changing as well. So this really is going to need some strong leadership. And what did you think of Peter's thoughts? Yes, I agree. As you say, strong leadership is going to be really important, isn't it? Um, and I did, did quite like his insistence that you know, low-hanging fruit is just not enough. And it, there must be more than LED lighting. And I think as well, he talked a little bit later on, didn't he, about the capacity of the SFT and made it clear that you know, the SFT will have its limits in that sense. But it's clearly going to be the driving force on this for a lot of uh, Scottish estate work. Uh, I particularly I think liked his insistence that you know, he said these problems cannot be solved by the spending of public budgets, which is a clear kind of indicator, isn't it, that he wants private finance to be involved. And I think you know there's no doubting that bringing private finance in to help deliver some of these difficult problems around net zero is going to be absolutely key. Definitely. But as Peter said, and I think this is another good point, is open to whatever configuration that is most appropriate for that private sector to come in and do the job. And what I really like to say is that there's a niche for everybody in this transformation. And it's quite an open invitation. And I think that's kind of what the private sector really needs. And we hear a lot about the innovation that's embedded in private sector projects and the scaling ability and utilizing that is, is going to be key. And these new and different forms of partnerships, as I said, are, are in the mix. And I think that's what is going to be a real eye-opener for our audience listening to this. Yes, and I think that issue of sort of new and different forms of partnership, I you know, really hope the industry listening to that kind of prick their ears up at that and, and think, well, okay, you know what, what can we do? Where can we fit in? I think, you know, historically in the UK, obviously people talk about the halcyon days of PFI government projects coming out, you know, sort of faster than you can keep up with them. And just being able to sort of crank out another bid for another PFI project that looked very much like the last one. And we all know that hasn't been the case now for many years in the UK. You could argue it is in some parts of the world. I think perhaps Canada in particular has been that way. But even there, you know, projects are becoming increasingly bespoke. And I think there is increasing ability for the private sector to go to government and say, we've got this idea of how we can do this better and we need to work with you on this. And I think there is a more open 
openness to doing that from the public sector as well. We've seen that in other places in the world as well. In, in Canada, they had a big unsolicited proposal, almost opening invitation from their infrastructure minister, because the reality is, is that, as Peter mentioned, the public sector is often a very small organisation relative to the private sector. And to rely on the public sector just to come up with all of the answers is is unreasonable. But this idea of collaboration to work together, to actually solve the problems and utilise the strengths of both, I think is really is the way forward. Yes, absolutely. And sort of you know, having that more holistic approach to infrastructure development, I think, is important. And plenty of private sector companies over the past five, ten years have done their own thinking on this. And we've seen it in different ways in which they are procuring projects. You, know, you mentioned Canada and North America and obviously Graham in Canada have recently sort of launched their own approach, their own kind of PPP approach that is sort of slightly different to anything else in the market. You look in the UK and there are various forms of partnerships working on particularly local regeneration, English Cities Fund working with the private sector to deliver big regeneration projects. So I think those kind of different ways of working are, are what sort of Peter's getting at. I think perhaps the one question that the industry might have in relation to all that upfront work that Peter's talking about doing that has to be thought through before you get to the point of procuring an asset or replacing an asset or refurbishing an existing one or helping to extend its life is that there has been a lot of thinking on this. It's been a lot of thinking over a number of years. There needs to come a point where that thinking does translate into action. And I think perhaps from the SFT's point of view or from the industry's point of view of the SFT, there hasn't been that same level of action that they would perhaps have liked. But, you know, to be fair to the SFT, again, it's, uh, you know, that it goes back to that point, doesn't it, of, well, the private sector can go to the SFT and, and make their case. Hmm, definitely. And, you know, these haven't exactly been easy times to deliver big programs of projects and there's been a lot, a lot on the plate. And one, one of those things is, as Peter mentioned, is inflation. And I know the world over, everyone listening to this, will it will be on their minds. And hearing Peter's take, I thought was interesting, saying that, you know, the, the whole idea of inflation being transitory is kind of out of the window now. That's generally not what people think. But his idea of inflation being embedded into projects, we're going to see that happening over the medium and long term. I think that's interesting and it kind of sets a bit of a goal for the industry to start thinking about and to kind of reconfigure and settle and some of it's going to stay and that, that just moves the goalposts in some ways. This setting the bar of inflation, I think, gives a, a much stronger future outlook for the industry where we've got something to aim for and we can start to coalesce around, you know, maybe a spectrum of possible outcomes, whereas Right now, lots of people, I know contractors specifically, are just in shock at the volatility that we're getting. So if we're starting to approach a new phase, so be it, and we could start to react to that. But I think that's a, a warming thing for me to hear. Yes, it's a positive note, I suppose, isn't it? I suppose the focus, I think, coming from Peter was very much on supporting in partnership rather than providing, say, you know, blanket support for bid costs. Again, it's this. this bid cost question keeps coming back, doesn't it, in different forms in different parts of the world. No one seems to have a you know, set answer to it that, that everyone agrees on, I think. But there is 
going to be some sort of role for greater partnership working. And it may be that early contractor engagement model that we've seen start to take shape in, particularly in North America, you know, things are happening in, in California, in Toronto and, and Ontario more widely. I think um, those kind of approaches, perhaps we, sh- we will start to see them elsewhere. Perhaps we'll start. That. Again, not really something that, that Peter has you know, sort of said is, is the kind of the way forward, but perhaps it is something that is going to end up coming through simply because of the, um, the economic conditions we find ourselves in. Yeah, and you know, I've been involved in a lot of discussions in North America about these, and some are saying it's just a pragmatic way of actually trying to share risk rather than just exchange it between parties when the risk itself is just too much to handle or too changeable. And others are saying it's just a way for the private sector to offload some more risk. And you know the debate's still out, but it's a debate that has to be had. I think there's so much changing in all directions that we've got to be open-minded as an industry and that's something that i definitely heard from peter yeah that flexibility is going to be important isn't it wherever you are in the world i think perhaps the other thing to come out of the conversation was around the sft's role in handback as i mentioned earlier you know the the comments around capacity i think the sft is probably going to be more hands-off than getting involved in each deal i think peter made that very clear but you know given the level of complexity that Peter himself talked about in this area. I think the agency will undoubtedly be called on to provide support. So I think it's be quite interesting to see you know, the level to which it ends up being involved. Yeah, he did mention about a you know a case by case basis, and maybe not having a programmatic approach will actually be beneficial. But it's going to be interesting. Again, that's another problem that changes a lot, and I think. As more and more projects go through it, the rhythm will get found and hopefully we'll be able to find some answers just in between the projects themselves that won't need to have kind of a higher power step in. But it's too early to say, isn't it? There's just not enough projects have gone through it and there's a lot of anxiety around it. Even if the problems maybe don't materialise, the approach is quite a nervous one. Mm, and I think overall you've got all these issues kind of coming in, they're linked, they overlap you know, whether it be from net zero, where we started the conversation through to hand back, there are issues there that, that are the same but different for each project. There are issues there that are, as I say, overlapping, changing. Um, so yeah, it's a really complex web that you've got when you look at the existing estate, never mind trying to create some sort of new program or system of projects to build the economy. Definitely. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And Thank you very much, Peter, also for joining us. Cheers.